Welcome to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, part one with comedian, comic improviser, and podcaster, Greg Proops. Uh, again, the city always has to change. The big lie is that it was worse before. The, uh, the lie is that gentrification makes things better. Gentrification eradicates local art and culture. That's what gentrification does. So it was dangerous before, but there was fucking bars, and there was bands, and there was nightlife, and there was people. Uh, when all of a sudden gentrified, now you have to stand in line to get a $5 cup of coffee. That's not progress to me. I liked the burrito places too, you know. I don't want to live in constant fear uh, of being jacked, but I'm not willing to trade off everything for personal comfort, and I think that's where they're at in San Francisco. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. Here we interview writers, artists, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find out more about past episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.com and at our Facebook page under Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral 2. You can reach us there or at fundanopodcast at gmail.com. Check out our conversations with Bay Area comedian Bucky Sinister, poet and novelist Al Young, 13-year-old electronic musician Henry Plotnick, longtime Fresh Air producer Amy Salad, sculptor Al Farrow, and rock and roll survivor Ken Queter. We have a lot more to come, too, so check back every two weeks for a new episode. On October 3rd, 1959, the TV anthology series The Twilight Zone debuted on CBS, chronicling stories of suspense, the macabre, and the supernatural. The following day, something even weirder happened. Greg Proops was born. I couldn't be more thrilled to have comic performer Greg Proops on the show, a showbiz fixture for over the last 25 or so years, as a popular stand-up, as the guy with the glasses from the long-running Whose Line Is It Anyway?, He's the voice of Bob the Builder, the announcer in the Star Wars Phantom Menace pod race scene, as well as a myriad of other appearances. It was his podcast, The Smartest Man in the World, that really caught my attention. Cited in 2014 by Rolling Stone as a top comedy podcast, The Smartest Man podcast is a weekly live monologue by the gifted improviser that swings through current events, pop culture, film and music geek valentines, and surreal flights of fancy all with an old-time lefty passion that is unheard of in the old media. Greg was passing through Philly on a three-night stand at the Helium Comedy Club when he stopped by to be interviewed at our Center City kitchen table. Our passions line up so evenly, I imagined it would not take much to get the conversation rolling, and for nearly two and a half hours, we talk about everything from class, the U.S. military, feminism, old-time Hollywood, Peter Lorre, Udu Kier, Ringo, Leslie Gore, and Proops' many stops along his 30-odd-year career. I broke the conversation into two parts. Check back next week for the conversation's conclusion. Along the way, I've sprinkled a few clips from Proops' Essential Smartest Man in the World podcast. Greg also has a spin-off podcast of film commentaries called The Greg Proops Film Club. You can find that at SoundCloud.com. And at GregProops.com, you can download his most recent comedy special, a very funny set live at Musso and Frank's, captured at the legendary L.A. restaurant. Thanks again to Mr. Proops for being so delightful, and we'll hear a clip and then get the conversation started with a big showy introduction.
November 8th and 9th, we'll be at the University of California in Chico, California, and then the Wells Fargo Center for the Arts in Santa Rosa, California. The Wells Fargo Center for the Arts. You know, sometimes you get tired counting money. Clacking your gold doubloons into those bags and just thinking about the tireless workers that wage for nothing. Sometimes a stagecoach goes by laden with gold with a couple of underpage wage slaves guarding the money inside. That's when you want to give a few dimes back to the arts so that people don't come to your town and crucify you for being a gold-loving motherfucker. The Wells Fargo Center for the Arts is proud to present shit so that people don't kill us. We use a quaint and curious stagecoach as our logo so that you don't think about the fact that we're fucking you over. <laughs> that we help create a financial crisis the likes of which this country may never climb out of. If you're rich, don't worry. It's a great time to be wealthy. If you're not rich, well, <laughs> welcome aboard, compadre. Today's guest is seasoned comic actor and performer of numerous credits, Greg Proops. I first became aware of Greg Proops in the early 1990s when he was a regular customer and I was a clerk at Lavidio's, uh, the VHS rental store in the Sunset District of San Francisco. We knew Greg was a performer on the British edition of Whose Line Is It Anyway, a TV masterclass in the art of comic improvisation. But we were so deep in conversations about John Woo and Tarkovsky, we could ba barely be bothered to say hello. <laughs> it was only later, around the year 2000, when I realized what a unique talent was Mr. Proops, when I saw him co-hosting the syndicated TV dating show, Rendezvous, where his quick and unpredictable wit added a delirious dimension to the dating show. But after hearing a hysterical performance on Mark Maron's WTF podcast in 2010, I was led to Greg's The Smartest Man in the World podcast. Although showbiz had offered Greg a multitude of contexts to showcase his talent, nothing could prepare us for the breadth of intelligence and wit that his own podcast reveals. Recorded live in front of audiences around the world, the show is an hour-plus improvised state of the nation fueled by the latest news, Greg's travels, and his many experiences that he has had as a San Carlos kid, as a working comic, and as a concerned citizen, always related with humor and empathetic passion. I'd reached out to Greg as a fan over the years and was delighted to find him to be such a mensch that he would take time out on his trip through Philly to join the fledgling Fun to Know podcast at the kitchen table for some conversation. Whose Line still lives with Aisha Taylor as the host on the CW Network. One can catch Greg there. And Greg will officially be an author in May with his first book, The Smartest Book in the World, which will be published by Touchstone Books, a Simon & Schuster imprint. Uh, good afternoon, Greg. Uh, thanks Hello, Mr. For, Dan. for coming here. Pleasure to be at the kitchen table. <laughs> it was nice. I, I saw you do your podcast on Thursday at uh, Helium here in Philly, and it was nice to hear you say some nice things about Philadelphia. Well, I love it here. Uh, I, I've, I didn't think I would, and I have. And I want to say something first to, uh, to the people who are listening to your show. Dan uh, came to my podcast a, a year ago in Philly and gave me um, a CD of uh, different Philly groups, some of which were arcane, most of which were arcane, and not known to me. And one was uh, The People's Choice, which was a funk band uh, since uh, the lead singer has since passed away. And uh, there was a jam on there called I Likes to Do It. And uh, my wife and I were listening to the CD in the car, and I said, uh, This DJ in Philly gave me this CD, you know. 
and this music guy. And so we heard that song, and uh, I'd been using my other theme song for the theme song of the Greg Proops Film Club, and we decided that was the perfect theme song for that. So I have you to thank for it, and of course I've never really given you credit. <laughs> I wanted everyone to think that I was so hip I knew the people's uh, choice. I always smile whenever I hear the theme come yeah. on. Uh, I enjoy the, the film podcast as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, there's so much to talk to you. I've, I've, I've spent uh, years now listening to your 90 minute, you know, uh, discussions every week. Um, and one thing that I thought was interesting was that, uh, you mentioned things on your podcast that, that old media is a little leery to discuss sometimes and particularly class, uh, a topic that, you know, tends to make people uncomfortable. You, you've discussed your upbringing with a father who was a bartender and a mother who was a waitress how do you think uh, having such solid working class credentials has affected your perspective as a performer? I think it's informed everything I mean, completely unintentionally on my part. I would have loved to have been rich, but uh, uh, <laughs> I lived in apartment buildings and my mother would manage the apartment building and my father would gamble and uh, we had a million different cars and, you know, uh, it wasn't that peripatetic. We, we moved occasionally. Uh, for a long time, we lived in San Carlos in two different apartment buildings. But I never had a house or any privacy or anything like that. And uh, then, of course, I meet people that never lived in an apartment, that always lived in a house. And I couldn't understand, they couldn't understand what it was like to be cheek by jowl with your family. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and I couldn't understand what it was like to have a backyard or whatever. Um, so I think it... it in some ways, the the bubbling resentment of being a a working class person uh, was um, when I say bubbling resentment, I mean you get into show business and then you realize uh, that it's not a bunch of working class people who've worked their way up to the top. That it's a bunch of Harvard people and a bunch of uh, people who went to prep schools and a bunch of people who are connected to the people who are already in show business. The nepotism is extraordinary. Uh, there's people producing TV shows in LA only because their father or mother produced a TV show. Yeah. It's not that they did it on their own merit or anything like that. And, of course, I in my naivete, I wasn't aware of that. So um, it's always been there in the background, but I've been able to give it... As a stand-up, I was able to give it voice and have done. Um, as one English critic said about me years ago, Greg's nasty secret is he's a, he's a humanist uh, because I've always been so snide. Um, but in the podcast, I've really been able to... And I wasn't even going to tell anyone ever because no one knows. And because I wear a suit and I act like a ponce and I'm, you know, snotty, people always think I'm some rich, educated person. And my wife said, and my wife came from a, a better off family, like her father was an officer, you know, and they had nice houses and this and that. Um, she said to me, you need to tell people. She goes, you have to be honest with the people who are listening and tell them that you're from a blue collar family. And that you didn't graduate college and that you, and I don't want to make it sound like I grew up as a sharecropper. This isn't Tobacco Road or something, but uh, I think it is important because there's people out there listening who think, oh Christ, I'll never make anything happen. Uh, and certainly uh, the dominant paradigm is, uh, exists and is uh, aimed toward keeping everyone from succeeding. The, the big lie of America is that if you work hard enough, you can do whatever you want. Well, fuck that. It isn't. <laughs> they, they've stacked the cards as hard as they can to make people not be able to do what they want. And so if anyone succeeds, I'm always impressed. Uh, when you meet... Uh, I took an informal poll once in the Who's Line van. We were in a van touring years ago, about 10 years ago. And um, 
I went around the van. There was about 10 of us. Uh, Ryan wasn't there, but I know Ryan's background. Ryan Stiles, the tall one from Whose Line Is Anyway. His father was a fisherman, and he grew up on a salmon boat. We were doing an improv last weekend, and they were doing a fishing sketch, and Ryan went, this is how you dress, not clean, this is how you dress a salmon. And he did it on stage in mime. And he did every step of it because it was something he'd learned since he was a child. It was like, that's a person who can dress a salmon. And not everyone can do that. You have to be a, a son of a... Drew didn't go to... Uh, is from a blue-collar family. Uh, he didn't finish college. Laura didn't finish college. Brad didn't finish college. Chip, I think, finally did. He went to a, a, like a nice... He went to that school with Dermot Mulroney and um, Diedrich Bader. Uh, it's an art school in... Um, in North Carolina? Yeah, that one. Yeah. Well, I can't think of the name. I can't think of the name either. Uh, Jeff Davis went a couple years to UCLA, I think. None of us really graduated college. And uh, Drew and Ryan and I are from straight up working class, which made my heart sing a little bit that we'd somehow found each other. And I don't know if it's a coincidence or just the fact that I was on whose line or that I've spent so much time with those guys, but Drew and Ryan have done more for me than any other people I've ever known in show business. And they, I've never asked them for a thing. They've just done it which I think is different than the people who are in the Harvard Mafia of show business, which a good deal of show business is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my own experience... No, sorry, that long question. No, no, that's long perfect. Long fucking answer. Uh, yes, me. please tell me about your experience. I, I brought you on here because you have a very reputation of being succinct and non-tangential. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a um, terse soundbite. For me, coming up from a, a working-class background, I really felt like I fought against the fought against the anti-intellectualism right? of such a place. Right? Yeah, that it's for you to have it to proclaim yourself the smartest person in the world. Uh, being smart wasn't always like uh, something that people gave you a thumbs up for. Uh, you know, at least in my experience. No, I remember my poetry teacher in uh, uh, college saying I caught the anti-intellectual drift early on in grade school. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never forgotten that phrase, the anti-intellectual drift, because yeah. uh, I've—it's always there. It's always there. It's—it's it, it's a threat to people, and uh, the way the country's broken down now with the the bizarre right-wing anti-intellectual camp uh, in charge of this one section of the media and uh, the national dialogue has to revolve around their idiotic precepts and science is, 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 ah. another, is another concept to be you know t taken or right we behind. debate science we debate guns we debate all the things that are not debatable that are absolute facts no. more people are killed by guns than anything else we, that makes everyone uncomfortable so let's not talk about that uh the global warming is somehow a theory and not a reality uh yeah and I, so i feel like it's something to be fought against all the time. And that's why on my show, I'm absolutely always read this, watch this, learn this, go talk to other people, travel, get some experiences. Don't listen to what the media is saying, Don't, or old media as you call it. Don't listen to um, the news. The news is designed to lie to you. It's called the news, but it's not. <laughs> if it was the news, then it would be, there's too many poor people, women are being killed, yeah. There's too many guns. We need to stop that. That's what news is. Uh, Once you did say on the air, should, should you trust? Should, should you trust people? And you said no. Well, maybe me and Amy Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> I love Amy Goodman. I think her heart's in the right place, and I think she's one of the great journalists in this country because there's there's actually lots of them, but uh, at least she has an outlet. And Democracy Now is somewhere I point people to all the time because people write me and go. Well, you're always talking about alternative. You know, I give them that stupid voice because that's their how they speak. Uh, you're always talking about alternative news sources. What should I do? And I'm like, democracy now, because she talks to experts. She talks to people on site. She goes to the events. If she can't go to them, she talks to someone on the phone that's been to them. Or uh, if there's a trial going on of a, a for instance, when 
uh, uh, Edward Snowden was arrested and harassed and hounded out of the country, she talked to his lawyers in London. I remember listening to that every day. And when uh, Ferguson went down, she went to Bloody Ferguson and talked to people. Like, that's news. That's news. News isn't sitting in a room in New York or like being Bill O'Reilly and going, I was in, where was he in Beirut, he said, and he was in, you know, and he's just lying about that. That's not news. That's just wool gathering. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> the fact that she has no corporate sponsorship of that show is what really sets it apart. Like, so if you're hard. not taking into account, you know, the, bank, the banks or the pharmaceutical companies that are mm-hmm. paying for your programming, it presents a whole different perspective to, to be taken on the news. Well, I, I know Greg Palast, and uh, I think my phone was tapped briefly for knowing him. Uh, Jennifer said every time she picked up the phone, it would be clicking like mad because he used to ring my house. And Greg Palast is a, quite a good investigative journalist, and he's not alloyed or uh, allied, allied uh, what, uh, embedded with anyone. I think the BBC occasionally strings for and uh, The Guardian and whatnot. Uh, and he calls NPR National Petroleum Radio. Yeah. Like, he's a bit a huge advocate for, uh, you know, when he, he was buddies with Hugo Chavez. And, you know, like, he really tries to show the other side of the news. His take on Katrina was amazing. He made a documentary about that. He talked about the government putting everybody in prison camps, basically, down there. And not doing a goddamn thing to help anybody. And uh, that's the kind of news you just don't see on Amy, TV. Amy Goodman's coverage of Katrina, she went down there. And an unforgettable uh, sequence she did uh, the, uh, that... Uh, there was a dead body in the street mm-hmm. and it had been there for five, six, seven days right. at that point. And uh, they stood out there and stopped every government pl- thing that went by, you know, the army and all these different people. And everybody stopped and said, not our job. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. talk to somebody else. Somebody else is going to have to move mm-hmm. that move that body. So much for human dignity. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, oh the sanctity of life, wasn't it, during the Bush administration? Mm-hmm. Sanctity of life, which he repeated incessantly. <laughs> Terry Shavo and all that. Yeah, uh, her reporting was great. This is where the mainstream, or if you're Sarah Palin, the lamestream media kicks in. Is it? You remember Anderson Cooper had been basically just a rich dilettante up till that point, and they sent Gloria him on Vanderbilt's that, yeah, Gloria son, Vanderbilt's yeah. son. They sent him down to uh, Katrina, if you remember, and all of a sudden there was dead bodies floating everywhere, and I don't think he'd ever really seen poor people. And then he was thrust into the maelstrom of uh, this horror, and all of a sudden he got a conscience. And so they gave him the show and everything. I still don't think he's up to the task all the time. But at least I think his head got turned uh, to the reality of the situation. I mean, when Ferguson uh, happened this last year, and uh, they were protesting in Los Angeles, and they blocked the freeway and whatnot. Uh, and we were watching it at home, uh, my wife and I. Uh, and uh, he was, you know, had his, whatever his crappy shows called 360 or whatever Anderson Cooper barely understands what's going on in the world uh, from a white privilege viewpoint of a rich person who was going to Vanderbilt's son uh, they you know they're showing it live and he goes what about the people who just want to get home and I was like wow man that did they tell you to say that I mean what about the people that aren't having any trouble right now right, should don't, we be concerned about them shouldn't they have some sort of special dispensation where the Negroes make way and let them go. Like, oh my God, that's how you perceive the world? You don't think we're all involved with each other? You think that there's a separate world that didn't, where Ferguson didn't happen in in America? We're Americans, right? And a cop can beat your head in, uh, Mr. Gay person, uh, as bad as they can beat in anyone. You know what I mean? I just don't. Absolutely. The lack of empathy just was, oh, 
Yeah, there, there's footage of Robert uh, Kennedy when he was on the campaign trail in 67 or something, and he was taken to the South and shown some real poverty. And he really seemed speechless. And I remember mm-hmm. him saying, like, you know, these are Americans. Yeah. Like, for everybody who, you know, flies the patriotic flag, like, shouldn't we feel like, you know, Americans shouldn't have to live like this? Huh. You know? He's so right. And, and that's who's in the armed forces, uh, the underclass. Uh, I, I really hate the... We have to support the troops, and we, uh, you know, at the airport at, at LAX, it goes, uh, the USO is open 20, you know, you hear the announcement on the thing, on the tannoy, on the PA, and uh, they always go, and we salute you, and honor your participation. It's like, no, we don't. No, we don't. Stop saying it. And then you go to the south, and uh, on all the airports, like Land Airport, Raleigh Airport, there's little, uh, get, you know, tip buckets that you're supposed to put money in for the troops to help oh the troops, yeah. and they guilt you to death on it. And you think, well, one, I pay a good deal of taxes to keep the war machine going. That's number one. And none of that money that goes to the war machine is going to the troops. It's not going to their welfare, their health care. They're free to go be mentally ill and live on the street when they're done with their tour. Um, So I really, the twisting of that really bugs me. Having met the troops and gone on some USO tours with Drew, who is a... Totally right guy about that. Where, where, where did you travel well, to with them? I'm not, and I don't want to conflate this into some giant Bill O'Reilly thing, but we went. It, Drew went to Iraq because Jeff Ross made that movie called um, Oh Christ, what was it called? Uh, it had a like a tour of duty kind of name. And and Jeff Ross, much to his credit, the opening of the movie is he goes, "I'm however old he was when they went. Uh, this is the beginning of the war, so two, th- 11, 12 years ago." He goes, "I've never voted, never voted." Never paid any attention to politics. Patriot Act, that was the name of the movie. Patriot Act, He goes, I've never done any of these things. I don't even have a passport. And I'm going to go to Iraq with Drew Carey and perform for the troops. So it's from his point of view, and he goes with all these other comics. And I was really proud of Jeff Ross for doing that. To be aware enough to go, I'm completely out of this. You know what I mean? I don't follow any of this. And then boom, there you are in the green zone, sitting in Saddam Hussein's throne. And all the, you know, uh, yeah, and then yeah. you meet all the troops. And the troops, the officers aren't, but the troops are from the underclass, man. Yeah. And you're meeting lots of gay people. And then uh, I went to, I didn't go to Iraq, uh, the, the Persian Gulf, or as we call it, the Central Asian Command. And that was Saudi Arabia, Oman, to a, 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 a classified base that we weren't supposed to tell existed. That the Omanis were allowing us to have there. It was called a tomb rate, and it was about 100 kilometers from the Yemeni border. And it's a B-1 base, and B-1s flew sorties day and night. We weren't at war with uh, Iraq yet. It was Afghanistan. So they were flying sorties. If you want to know what kind of sorties they were flying, against personnel. They were killing people. They weren't flying sorties to scare people. They weren't flying. Uh, And one of the pilots told me, I met him in the VX, and he said, uh, we can see their figures. Our cameras are really powerful when we fly over. We can see them driving their goats, and we see the children and everything. We don't see faces, and then we pew, 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 drop our bombs on them, our payload. Wow. Uh, uh, and we went to, um, oh, yeah, no, Oman is what I'm thinking Dubai of. Or... Yeah, we went to uh, Dubai. Uh, yeah, the, the one that's at the very end of the Persian Gulf, and um, that used to be a close society up until about the 70s. Uh, I think it's, um, I'm thinking... I'm trying to. I'm. I'm blanking on the capital of it. Um, it. Literally, up until the 70s, there was a gate around the city, a wall, and they'd close the gate at night and whatnot. And then um, the Sultan uh, 
went to London and his son overthrew him while he was at the Dorchester in London. Uh, and his name's Caboose, Sultan Caboose, whose picture's on all their money. And um, he's tried to hip it up a little and let women be educated and like not chop gay people's heads off and stuff like that. And uh, so that we were there and that was a week. And then uh, subsequent to that, that Thanksgiving, we went to the Balkans and we're in um, Bosnia, uh, Kosovo, Macedonia and whatnot. And that was basically a, a UN uh, mission, not us. Uh, the, the mission there was a giant UN mission, peacekeeping force, and they were going from house to house uh, and taking out uh, unexploded ordnance and stuff from that giant civil war. This is seven years after that civil war started, and it wasn't still going, but there were no roofs anywhere on any of the houses because the tactic was if you were Serb, you went into a Croat's house. If you were Croat, you went into a Serb's house. You turned on the oven like you have and lit a candle. You didn't light the pilot. You just turned on the oven and lit a candle, and then you left the house. And eventually, the house full of gas and blew the the roof off. And um, you know that was a terrible war that they fought house to house, hand to hand. And uh, all of a sudden, your neighbor, who was a Croat, who you lived next door to for twenty years, you now you're raping their daughter and shooting them. And that was that kind of war. So it was pretty icky. You couldn't go off the road to urinate like they would pull over when we after we'd do a gig. We were doing improv, of course, hilarious. Uh, we'd be driving back in the bus, and they go, "We'd all go. We, we want to stop and take a leak, you know." And they go, "Don't walk off the pavement," because there were no dogs, there were no animals, there were people with one leg. There was just hundreds of thousands of mines, yeah. uh, or UXO as we call it in the military. So that was a fun trip. And some of the officers were, one guy connected himself to us and was sort of that Johnny gung-ho cliche. Look at these fucking people. Look how filthy this fucking place is. These people are savages. Like he was the Robert Duvall of our trip. Sometimes he'd stand on stage while we were performing with us. So we said to our liaison, who was named Captain Tom, we'd said, Captain, is there any way to get the colonel off the stage while we're performing? He went, no. (laughs) He said, I'm a captain. He's a colonel. He goes, I can't even broach the subject with him. Wow. He's my commanding officer. I can't say, Colonel, the, the cast is a little uncomfortable with you standing there in your fatigues <laughs> while they're doing comedy. And he gave me a shirt, and I don't think I have it anymore. The Colonel gave me a shirt. I'm not saying any of their names, because I'm sure they're all still alive. And it was a, a, a Huey gunship lifting off, and uh, under it it said, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Not a democracy, the military. Well, I have lots of coins. Uh, we met the Undersecretary of Defense. He was in Bosnia. Uh, uh, this is the Bush administration, 2002. Uh, and they give you coins and they put them in their hand. Uh, and they're for each other for different campaigns and whatnot. That's how they do it. So we are just performers, but they're treating us nice, nicely. And so I have dozens of campaign coins from every different unit. In the Persian Gulf, Central Asia. Uh, well, I love calling it Central Asia, even though it's the Middle East. Uh, it's because Afghanistan is in Central Asia, and they were uh, the AWACS unit uh, had a picture of the AWACS plane, right, which is a surveillance plane, and on that card it said, "In God we trust; all others we monitor." <laughs> <laughs> so they'd slap it in your hand like that. So I have dozens of those campaign ribbons, uh, black jackets, uh, campaign hats, uh, T-shirts from. All the places. We went to Norway, too. There's a really beautiful base in Norway uh, in Stavanger. 
uh, where there's 73 people and they didn't have to wear uniforms. Yeah. We went to a dinner party and we had officers serving us cocktails and whatnot. And, you know, it was, but it was fun. And, but Drew loves the troops and they were really nice. But you meet a lot of troops who were gay and they, they weren't out then. I don't know what the deal in the military. I think they finally can after last year. But yeah. how did you, how I'm did from that, San Francisco, so when they, I meet a gay person, you know. <laughs> how, did that, how did you know they were gay? How did well, my gaydar kicked in. <laughs> uh, you'd meet a male guy and he'd be like hi and you go uh-huh and then uh some of the women troops would come up and be like i work in the motor pool and you're like i understand <laughs> they just went about their jobs they call their life groundhog day every day's the same and so when we played for them and anyone will tell you this like i say i don't want to inflate my experience many people have gone into much more dangerous areas than i have but uh anyone who's played for the troops will tell you that they're weepingly grateful that there's any any break in their horrible mundane thing that they have to do day after day yeah. and at that point in the the war we were ramping up for iraq this was definitely on the cards no one was being rotated out so like you didn't know how long you were going to be uh in your post yeah. i mean theoretically you're supposed to be six months in or whatever and then but people were being rotated right back in. There was that charade at the time that we were thinking about going to war to Iraq. But uh, meanwhile, we were moving all that equipment there. There, And I, I would point it out to people like, you know, if we're moving all the equipment there, we're not thinking about it. We're, we're, we're doing it. We went yeah. to a, 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 a command center, which is no longer there. We've moved everything to what we call Qatar. Qatar. Yeah. Um, but in those days, it was right outside of um, a base called Prince Sultan outside of Riyadh and there was a command center and we were taken to it and we were ushered upstairs one entire wall was Afghanistan the other entire wall was Iraq and it had uh, little emblems of ships uh, 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 planes that were running sorties and raids and uh, I couldn't help but notice that the other wall was Iraq now m mind you we were maintaining a no-fly zone and had been since the Clinton administration right? or the uh, Herbert Walker. They estimate um, a million people died through mm -hmm. that. Yeah, of yeah. poverty. Yeah. Uh, so we were taken upstairs to the sanctum sanctorum of this building. Right, the place was all a bustle with uniformed soldiers shifting papers on computers, high level, uh, top security. You know, it was a uh, unassuming, horrible little crappy brick building. The kind of bricks we used to use. Remember when we were students to make shelves out of no, those cinder blocks. Cinder blocks. Yeah, it was a cinder block building. Um, third country nationals uh, standing in the road with brooms sweeping the sand off the road. Uh, TCNs from Pakistan, uh, 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 all the poor Arab nations. Of the Saudis let them in, take their passports away, hold them for five years. So they were what we would call a slave, what you might call an indentured servant, because you simply can't leave. Yeah. Uh, what the army calls TC or, or the Air Force, we were with Air Base, uh, TCNs, third country nationals. They served all the food at all the um, mess halls. It was always TCNs. It was always Pakistanis. So, of course, they liked us because we're Americans. And we go, hi, how are you? <laughs> the Saudis treat them like curs. You can imagine. Wow. Uh, so there they were, sweeping sand off the road, right? And uh, so we were on a plane once, a C-130 transport. And I said uh, to the pilot, they ain't hurting for sand down here. Right? We're flying over uh, Saudi going to Oman. And he goes, let me tell you something. All the sandbags you see on the base, and the entire base is surrounded with sandbags. I mean maybe a, hunt, you know, a million sandbags. He goes, all of that has to be brought in. <laughs> you are not allowed to use the sand of Saudi Arabia. Oh, really? 
These are our best allies, right? <laughs> our number one partner. Remember how Bush used to kiss? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which one was it? Abdullah or Fod? Fod. That our Bush? Or yeah. The, uh, George, George Herbert. I mean, George Walker used to kiss Fod. Yeah, and then yeah. Fod died and hoved over to Abdullah. And then Abdullah just died. Yeah. Now it's one of these other cranky old psychopaths. Uh, so we were taken into the Sanctum Sanctorum. They turned off a couple screens, flipped over some code books. Didn't do much to hide from us what was there. Oh, of course, I can't read code. So, uh, And I said to the guys, I bet they wouldn't let Hillary Clinton in this room. She was a senator then. Yeah, I'm like, they wouldn't let her in this room. They'd say, you don't have clearance. But we were with Drew Carey. So we're let in. And uh, Sean Masterson says to one of the officers, how much software and hardware do you have here? And he went, all of it. He says, is there anything you can't pull up on the internet? And he went, no. And uh, I said, Colonel, that map of Iraq over there. And he went, yes. And I said, say a Russian MiG takes to the air. What do we do? And he said, we deter them. And I said, would you care to expound on the definition of deter? And he said, suffice to say we deter them. So my understanding is, I infer from that, or is it intimate, I infer that uh, we're fighting an air war against the Iraqis for a good dozen years before we decided to invade again. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there it was, in green, yeah. on the walls. I, I didn't have to imagine that we were going to go to war with Iraq. It was staring us in the face. Well, you get to the the basics that the the uh, hijackers were, you know, mainly Saudi Arabians. Oh, everyone except one. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, Rumsfeld's famous, uh, you know, we, we're going to bomb Iraq. We're going to, uh, you know, go to war with Iraq because there's better targets there. Hmm. Yeah. Hailed as liberators, I believe, one of yes. them said. Is <laughs> that Cheney or Rumsfeld? Hailed as liberators. Yeah. Well, there you go. that was weird. But the troops are largely uh, uh, lower class, underclass, working class. A lot of them sons and uh, daughters of, of uh, kids I went to school with. Yeah. So it's, it's impressive how brave and dedicated they are. I lost a, a cap in the, the Bosnia. We were playing a show, and I'd gotten a temporary crown. And I, like an idiot, I was eating a mento. I don't think there's a worse thing you could put in your mouth. Maybe a jujube. And I spit it out, and I realized the crown had come off. And I just looked on the ground. It was gravel, right? So there's no way to... So I did the show. I didn't say nothing. Then afterward, I said to the major who was looking after us, um, I lost my crown. And he goes, I'll take you to the dentist. So we wake the dentist up. He comes in with a sidearm, and he goes, he was uh, from Kentucky, I think. He goes, they make me wear this sidearm. He goes, fat lot of good it would do me if anything ever happened. And then he wakes up his uh, assistant, Loopy, and Loopy comes in, and they took out a box, a cardboard box, that had a bunch of crowns, like metal crowns, for your teeth in it, and shook it. And he went, let's see, which one? That one. And no anesthesia. He put it on me with a pair of pliers. And then he gave me a bottle of Advil. Then the major took me to the mess hall and got me a bowl of soup. <laughs> and I went back to my room. And I said, thank you for looking after me. Because, you know, he'd spent hours with this nonsense after the show. And he went, that's what we do. And then you feel terrible because someone who's so dedicated and friendly and helpful and... Uh, worried about your teeth. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
see Jerry Lewis years ago, and he had to be about 70-something when he did this one, right? He was over at the Orleans. I don't know if you've ever been to the Orleans. There's fucking beer caddies at every seat, right? <laughs> Everyone's got a giant beer, and everyone had those little Kodak box cameras that cost $8 that you buy at the, at the pharmacy thing here, right? And a woman in the front had a pair of binoculars, right? Well, Jerry Lewis... <laughs> yeah, you fucking heard me, binoculars. <laughs> Not like field, not opera glasses, like field glasses, right? You know, like she was watching the Preakness or something. And Jerry Lewis comes on. He does like two hours, right? He shows clips. He's got a full orchestra. He did all the jokes. He stuck a, a lollipop up his nose. He, fi he filled his mouth with Tic Tacs. Then he pretended to smash his mouth on the mic and he spit them out like they were his teeth. It was the fucking best show I've ever seen in my life. It was extraordinary, right? Uh, he never left the stage. He never sat down. He never took a drink of water. He just bulldozed. And he would look at everyone in the crowd to make sure people were laughing. Like, my wife, he put the glass in his mouth. I don't know if you've ever seen Jerry Lewis do that one. He puts an entire glass in his mouth. So that's like, I can't do it. I can't open my mouth that wide. That's why I don't have work. And he takes the glass and he puts it in his mouth like this. And he's walking up and down the front of the stage. And my wife and I are in the second row. And we're stunned, right? We're not laughing. We're just like, like, like an anime cartoon. Fucking <laughs> Lewis is patrolling with the glass in his mouth, like Patton. And he gets to us and he sees we aren't laughing and he just stares at us with the glass. And we went, ah, and fell over. And then he fucking moved on. And it was like he went to every single person in the audience and made sure they fucking laughed. So he sees the lady in front of us and he goes, binoculars in the front row. She's 90 years old. 90 years old in a wheelchair with binoculars. He goes, binoculars in the front row. Why not bring the dog? And she falls over laughing. He goes, laugh it up, you old hooker. <laughs> oh, it was glorious. Curious about you growing up as a, as a kid watching comedians what, what comedians touched you when you were uh, well when i was really yeah. little i loved all the old time guys like jack benny and you know george burns that they were on tv a lot when i was little little uh, side here for a second yeah last week on mark Marin, he had uh, harry shear on and harry shear i had no idea a regular on the radio jack benny show was he really eight years old oh yes. my goodness and That's uh fantastic he, i did not know that he said the the third night he he did the did the show and he came out with a transcription for him and said, you know, this is for you. He said, I was in at that point. And he talks about, you know, uh, at the script table with Mel Blanc and Jack Benny, making Jack Benny laugh and everything. Wow. I had no idea. Me neither. Went back that far. God, that's fantastic. Yeah, but as a kid, I was a fan of old-time radio somehow yeah. as well. And uh, listening to those Benny shows is amazing. They're still amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, the writing's just superb. Uh, there was a, uh, a DJ in San Francisco when I was little named John Gilliland and he did a comedy hour at night and I listened to it religiously in my little bed with my AM radio. It was the first time I heard Monty Python uh, and he would play um, Nichols and May and, uh, you know, all, all the old-time comics we too. We had a similar show here in town. It was Steve Feinstein, the comedy right. hour. and yeah, all It those. was completely educational to me. Yeah. Every time I think I'm not doing the right thing or I'm blathering over well you know ridden on ground or that everybody knows what I'm talking about why are you bringing this up again I always have to remember and Jennifer always reminds me everyone doesn't know what you know and everyone doesn't have the same frame of reference it's okay to play a record or a comedy routine or talk about someone that you think everyone knows because for you and I it was these guys we sat there listening to them and they played these records for us and we were like it totally expanded my mind right like you 
If I hadn't had him, I don't know what I would have done. Who would have played all those records for me? No one would have sat me down and played no. me. Here's the first Monty Python record. Lenny Bruce. I Lenny Bruce. There, you know. uh, Mort Sahl, though, was he made an album called Sing a Song of Watergate. Mm -hmm. uh, this is 74, 70, 74, 73. And um, he used to play that record. And so that was my introduction to Mort Sahl. And then you go backwards. And uh, Jonathan Winters on TV, I always thought was a genius. Uh, uh, and then uh, for stand-up comics, my high school, it was Cheech and Chong, mm -hmm. uh, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, you know, the, the 70s ones, Lily Tomlin. And so I really dug all of them too. Uh, but I really like the old-time comics too. And then, you know, when you, you get to the certain age where someone hips you to the Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy were, when I'm so old, when I was five, I remember it, uh, before I'd go to school, like first grade kindergarten, in LA, I lived in Lancaster, uh, California which is out in the high desert. Uh, now it's a meth lab, but in those days it was uh, like an Air Force military plant and all that shit. They used to fly jets over. The, the, I grew up with sonic booms, which I don't think I've heard a sonic boom in a thousand years. They would play Laurel and Hardy in the morning on TV. And I remember watching Laurel and Hardy before I went to school. And then I got it. I was, when I was in Palo Alto. I was in, uh, oh, this is so awful. Slow class, middle class, and fast class. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, fucking absolutely. Yeah. Hideous shit they dealt children. Yeah, yeah. Slow class. Slow class for you. Slow. Yeah, right. No, I was in fast class, and we didn't have to go to school till nine. Wow. So Laurel and Hardy was on at eight, and Candy Camera was on at 8.30. And I remember one of the kids complaining I couldn't, he, he couldn't watch all of Candy Camera because we had to walk to school. <laughs> so I remember seeing all the Laurel and Hardy movies when I was a little kid. And that kind of inspired me. And then, uh, you know... I started doing comedy in the late 70s and then became a professional comedian in the early 80s. So I'm in the class of uh, Jake Johansson, uh, Mill Abel. Um, uh, my buddy was Warren Thomas, who passed away. Uh, ahead of me was uh, Bobby Slayton, Paula Poundstone, Michael Pritchard, uh, Barry Sobel was my age. All uh, working out of San Francisco? Yeah, all these San Francisco cats. Uh, Will Durst was a little older than me. I looked up to Will. Uh, he's kind of a mentor to me, which he would horribly hate if I if he heard me say this. I've said it to him anyway, and he hates it anyway. But it wasn't so much that he took me under his arm or, or even took me aside. It was simply how he behaved and how he acted. He was such a good guy. Um, and he doesn't understand how much I learned from him. But what, what was your early material like? Oh, terrible. <laughs> I, I, that's everybody's early frantic stupid uh, commercial parodies songs completely overheated just overheated nonsense you know <laughs> loud fast uh, I was in a part I was in a team with uh, my grade school buddy Forrest Brakeman and then we Proops were in a team Proops and Brakeman then we were in a team in high school then we were in a team in San Francisco in 82 and 83 and uh Years ago, we got drunk at his house, and he had a cassette of one of our sets. There's a video of us from 78. I have it. Oh, really? We were quite thin, and we're doing a Star Trek, <laughs> uh, epic Star Trek routine that's 20 minutes long. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, rest in peace. Oh, I know. He's such a nice person. And uh, uh, we were frenetic. You know, we listened to the set, and we were like, we're not letting anyone laugh. And it was because we were terrified of... Silence. Silence. Yeah. And then last night at the show, uh, the cat I'm working with named Roger Weaver is a local Philly comic who's uh, advanced in years. He's not probably not older than me, but he's being introduced as one of Philly's hot young comics. And that was very funny. He comes out and he goes, yeah, I'm one of the hot young comics. He's clearly a grown man. Uh, he said to me last night, and I know he didn't mean it as a left-handed compliment. 
he said, you're not afraid when the audience doesn't laugh. And of course it meant there were minutes that went by where there was no fucking laughs, which is not the program. The program is LPMs, as, as always, like with everyone. Uh, every every mm, 15 to 30 seconds, basically. 30 seconds to a minute at least. Wow. But he was right, and I understand what he was saying. I, 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 he meant that in the middle of the show, people got really uncomfortable, and that I carried on, and I don't back the fuck off of it. And I said, that comes with age and bitterness. You just eventually <laughs> dig in and go, I don't care whether you think this is funny well that, that seems somewhat to be <laughs> not the point of the podcast but um the podcast sort of separates you a little bit from the laughs per minute need in some sort of way it seems oh, it's absolved me of it yeah it's it's so freeing i still try to get as many laughs as i can and uh, you've listened to it enough to know that and you've attended it enough to know the first half hour, 45 minutes, is usually pretty rapid fire and I go through a lot of stuff and there's lots of jokes and funny stories, anecdotes, impressions. We play music, I get up and dance like an idiot. Uh, dancing that seems stuff. to always go over well. Yeah, dancing uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that live. <laughs> oh no, the dancing always works. Uh, and people can't... I, last week in LA we did Leslie Gore, uh, her, her obituary, God rest her, and, uh, who was a wonderful advocate for uh, women's rights and queer rights. And... Uh, Ryan, our, you know, uh, our dude who does the thing. Uh, I hesitate to call him producer because that would give him authority. Um, <laughs> was jumping in with cues, right? Like he thought, you know, usually I go, hey, spin that disc or whatever. And he was jumping in with shit early. And I'm like, what, you're in the show now? <laughs> uh, but I made him play It's My Party Over. Like he played it underneath something. And I was like, I didn't want it underneath this. I want to play it. Because it's a perfect record. It's a beautiful record. Uh, Quincy Jones wrote it, put it together with, um, oh, oh, oh I, Jennifer gave me the thing. It was on last week's show. Uh, Phil Ramon. Wow. Phil Ramon and Quincy, Quincy brought him the record. And when I'm trying to do it over at this other thing, and, and he, we got this girl, you know, this little Jewish girl. And she's 16. And Phil Ramon said, You can't imagine what Desley Gore acted like at 16. She's completely self possessed. Uh, fearless to put herself on the line he said the decisions she'd fucking make she didn't act like a kid she acted like a fucking artist and of course she murders the record and then I, I, I had him crank it up and I got up and danced to it and the place fucking went crazy it's from 19 total pre-Beatles dance party uh, crybaby record but uh, uh, also a total female empowerment record right and it uh, you could totally dance to it it, it really had everything handclaps on the beats which I Totally, that's my finger snaps and hand claps are. What did Smokey Robinson say? You have to have a tambourine to make a good record. Yeah, yeah. I believe in finger claps and hand snaps, and uh, the place that the place was just fucking crazy. And all I did was get up and do the twist and the frug and stuff, and you know, and the shake and all those dances. And uh, uh, you know, as soon as you start doing it, you realize no. In the early '60s, people went wild to this fucking record, man. My sister did. Uh, my sister's seven years older than me. Yeah. So her taste always, I trailed in the wake of her taste. I remember when it was a hit record, I was really little. They used to still play it. And of course, it was always a joke at the house. Whenever anything bad happened, we'd say, it's my party and I'll cry when I, if I want to. Yeah. Then she made the awesome follow-up sequel single, It's Judy's Turn to Cry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then You Don't Own Me, which we you also played, yeah. which is the great female empowerment record of yeah. the 60s. And she uh, just belts that stuff out. You watch her on the Tammy show and, you know. She's magnificent on the Tammy show. Yeah. Uh, the Tammy show, there's something your your people, I'm sure your people are already 
insane audiophiles like you are, um, you you you're the only person. My wife and you really could spend the rest of time <laughs> in your sea of wax. Uh, well, I watched the Tammy Show again with my wife like a year ago, and it is, it's just brilliantly put together. It's one of the great. You know, it doesn't have the Beatles or whatever, but it has everyone else. Uh, and and I love Jan and Dean. I really do. I think they're as good as the Beach Boys in a lot of ways. They're certainly funner. Uh, yeah, they had tragedy too, but they don't have that horrible emotional baggage that the Beach Boys are the saddest. The father's abusive and Brian's crazy and, and Dennis out. is a rapist and, you know, or I'm not a rapist. I don't want to get in trouble. But he was with the Manson family. He was a pervert, you know. <laughs> Came out about 15 years ago, the tape of... Uh... The band cutting helped me, Rhonda. And all those stories you heard about his father are demonstrated there. Oh, really? His father's in the studio going, I try and protect you, Brian. I've been trying to protect you. And now you're, you're here and you're, you're not singing from the heart. You know, and they wow. get this huge fight on Mike. And it's, I always, you know, that relationship, because my own relationship right. with my father always carried the certain weight. And to hear it played out on, on audio was chilling. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, that the the I just wasn't made for these times documentary where he talks about the way his father beat him. Yeah. In yeah. vivid detail and description. I was like, Oh, oh the, my god. The ageless story of his father to, to punish them would take out his glass eye and make mm-hmm. them stare into the hole and oh, wink at Jesus them. Jesus Christ, what an evil fuck. What was his name? Al? Uh no Murray Wilson. Murray Wilson, because the, remember the buttons? I know Murray Wilson instead of the Beach Boys. Like that was his idea. <laughs> the many moods of Murray Wilson. He and came out with his own record he's, when he split he's, from the Beach Boys. Did he and, sell the whole like, Library to Capital for a pittance. That's another couple hundred thousand. Story, or yeah, yeah. What a crackpot. But Jan, did did Brian write uh, Surf City for Jan and Dean? He did write Surf City, yeah. I believe, for Jan and Dean. And I heard Surf City the other day, and what a great record. Yeah. And there, you know, there there is there is fun. They're also really funny and good looking. The difference is there's no fuckable guys in the Beach Boys except the drummer. Yeah. And uh, Jan and Dean are both really good looking and look like surfers and have bodies like surfers. <laughs> the Surf City video is hilariously cute and. Yeah, and when you talk about the Tammy show, you you, you got to get to James Brown's performance on there. Which and is... it's before I feel good, and it's before Papa's got a brand new bag, and he, yeah. he still rips the fucking joint. And I remember Will, um, Milk Jagger saying, thank God we had hits, because we had to follow him. <laughs> but you may notice it's also the first show where Jagger, like he always danced around, but yeah. he really dances around at the Tammy show. At that point. Right, yeah. and then within like, what, what year is that show, 65? 65, yeah. Within the next three or four years, then Mick Jagger's a whirling dervish. Yeah, they say Tina Turner was the big influence on right, that. Right, because he, yeah. they, 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 the, they op- the, I, I can Tina open for him. Yeah. And yeah. aside from shagging all the Icats with Bill. <laughs> uh, yeah, Mick, Mick looked at Tina Turner and said, that's who I want to be. Yeah, I got to get up there and dance. And then he became the fabulous dancer that he is. Because you watch Gimme Shelter or anything like that, and all of a sudden he's chugging across the stage. He's doing a striptease. He's on his knees. Yeah. He's got a feather boa. He's acting like a girl. <laughs> he's he's being a pansexual monster. And yeah. that's absolutely James Brown and Tina Turner. Um, it was the juxtaposition of, is it Chuck Berry and Jerry and the Pacemakers? They do this one where the staging's so brilliant where they have Chuck play a song. Mm-hmm. Is it Jerry? I can't remember. It's some English group. And then they stick the English group on. It's a total British invasion. That's what makes it so great is that it's all these old-time rhythm and blues acts like James Brown and Chuck Berry yeah. with all the fucking uh, uh, British guys. And then mixed into it, Leslie Gore, who was just a hot singer at the time, Jan and Dean, who are the surf scene is going. You really get a, a complete overview of like pop music. Yeah, from that but moment. But bringing yeah. Chuck Berry out. Like Chuck Berry's, he's a golden oldie in 1965. Yeah. It's only been 10 years and he's already the elder statesman, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he can fucking do it. Yeah. And he does it. Um, 
I love that show. It's got... And the Rolling Stones are tremendous. And they don't have any big hits. I don't even think they have satisfaction when they do it. And th and it puts paid to a lot of the lies that the Stones like to purport uh, or keep perpetuating, which is that Brian was a mess and that Brian couldn't do this and that Brian couldn't do that and that Brian couldn't sing and Brian didn't write the songs. And it's like, you watch the Tammy show. And Brian Jones is fucking shaking his ass, shaking his head. He's at the front line. He's whipping the crowd into a frenzy. Mick's not the only star in that band. Yeah, yeah, Brian had a special... And Brian's really show. good looking and can really play guitar, better than Keith can play guitar. Yeah. And um, I think he wrote a few of the songs and they just didn't give him credit. Yeah, yeah. He was always well, known for adding the uh, the uh, unique instrumentation of... Ruby yeah. Tuesday and whatnot. But I think he wrote... They're saying he recently, I've read that he wrote Ruby Tuesday. Yeah. Not only did he do the arrangement and put the flute in and everything, but... You recently, you recently came out with a, a very thumbs up for the the modern stones the stones today you 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 were you weren't in the backlash anymore you were you know my wife is the biggest stones fan and uh, as i said on my show when we heading to the concert she turned to me and grabbed my arm we're in the car and she went what if they're terrible like with panic in her face and i went it'll be okay it'll be okay they won't be terrible and they're in very good form uh, -huh. uh the best part was they had um Mick Taylor with them Oh, and he right. did a couple numbers and then they let him take a bow with them at the end like he was mm -hmm. in the group yeah and i thought so you've spent all this extra money because you've had to bring mick taylor with you just for these couple numbers yeah. but it was midnight rambler and uh, uh, uh um can't hear me knocking or something and then it was an encore too so he's a better player than keith keith can't really play anymore he's, i think he's got arthritis or whatever i don't even know if he's actually playing if they're doubling him downstairs i mean that's not unheard of yeah, yeah. i mean when you can't play anymore, they just double you off stage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or vocals, too, obviously. Yeah. Um, I do feel like you've killed Santa Claus a little bit for me, but okay. Well, I'll maybe they're it. not. Maybe he is. <laughs> well, you know, you watch him play sometimes, and he's not holding the fretboard. Oh, like, he's yeah. he's not making chords, and he's just wanging away. And, like, he's pretty sloppy to begin with. Like, yeah. he never picks with any intensity. It's always... <laughs> like an, you listen to their live albums when they play like Satisfaction or whatever it's always or Jumping Jack Flash like there's no rhythm and I just put out the, the Saturday Night Live performance when they uh, came oh, yeah. and played on Saturday Night Live the 70s one yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so they're doing Shattered yeah yeah that, they're very good then yeah Mick I kind of feel like uh, the vocals like he, he he sounds like he's two, you know two thirds of the way through the tour or something he yeah he's a little shaky on little that little bellowy vocals on yeah. you know yeah. and not I think he's taken a lot more voice lessons in the last 20 years too yeah, yeah. he's also learned to sing through his nose I noticed because uh, five years ago we saw him at the Hollywood Bowl and they did Ruby Tuesday of all numbers. And they did Time is on My Side. A lot of oldie ones. And I noticed he was, rather than reaching for the notes and not getting there, which is inevitable, he was putting it all through his head. Hmm. So then it was a, Time is on my side. Instead of trying to sing it, yeah. he could, he'd learn to redo it and make it that way. Whereas Keith's voice is shot. Yeah. Keith used to sing background vocals on every song. That's right. And now he comes out and he does his numbers and that's it. He didn't sing any background vocals. Yeah. And like, they used to have Blondie Champlin in the band, but he's, he wasn't in the last tour. I noticed they'd kicked yeah. him out. It's Bernard and what's her name? Lisa, I guess. Who are fabulous. I mean, thank God they're there. Although they can sing flat too, you know. <laughs> the great thing about the Stones is they're often flat. <laughs> they don't always get on all the notes. Yeah. Fine singing was never there.
<laughs> I think it's just the excitement of them bashing around and sure, yeah, it's theatrical. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all vaudeville, well, you know. Yeah. They brought out John Mayer, and that made me laugh so hard because I hate John Mayer, and I think <laughs> oh it's yeah, like, they, didn't they bring out a lot of like young contemporary stars to oh, tour on the last one in L.A. They had Gwen Stefani. Uh, uh, John Mayer, uh, yeah, like you remember in the movie, I think Christina Aguilera comes out and sings a number and shit. But uh, and Jack White, whatnot. But they brought John Mayer out in Orange County, and the crowd was completely nonplussed, you know. And then they let him play a few licks and whatnot. And Mick stood next to him, and like, and then while John Mayer's playing, Mick starts dancing and fucking stealing focus. And I thought, you do this every night, don't you? You have perpetual energy. You're a superstar. And you bring out these guests like it's this big thing. Oh, look who we've got out here. And then you just stomp all over them because everyone's watching you. And John Mayer's weak in, yeah. in your realm. You know, like, yeah, he can play the blues a little, but not like Mick Taylor can play the fucking blues. And, you know, and then they, oh, John Mayer, isn't that great? You know, and you're like, you just fucked him over, man. He came out there in a flannel shirt yeah, yeah. and looked like the biggest douche. And the Orange County crowd, you know. Hooray. Everyone was my age, our age, older. You know, it wasn't a bunch of... Although the people in front of us were definitely tweaking on Molly. Or some drugs. Because they weren't drinking. We were drinking because we're grown-ups. They were drinking water, like, furiously. And they were high as fuck. Uh, Then they played Emotional Rescue, which I thought... I thought we'd survive this song in the early 80s. But how now, mix, how did Mick sing that? Yeah. Was he up there in that falsetto? The whole oh yeah, he oh, tried yeah. to. Oh yeah, no, he was a. He can't sustain it, but he did do it, and that they'd worked out an arrangement of it. And of course, Charlie's always cranking, yeah. and as soon as you get into the disco, then you can lean back on that. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> I said to Jennifer, we thought it was a crappy song then. But now, compared to how crappy music is, it seems like a disco classic. Yeah, yeah. Know? It almost stands up. At the time, it was like that was all leftovers from some oh. girls, and they, yeah. It was, it was that. I don't even know why that album exists. <laughs> what is that? Uh, Emotional Rescue, right? Yeah, I think it's a title. Oh God! And it's got uh, "I'm So Hot for You." Yeah. And some of their really, like you say, it's outtakes. Unlike the Beatles, I don't think there's anything left of the Beatles we haven't heard. I no, think everything I, they put down on wax is on wax. They didn't. They didn't dump a lot of songs, uh, you know, midway through. Just about everything, you know, that, that uh, they recorded, they really finished. I, I've gone back in recent years and really listened to those sessions and right. uh, how great to listen to seven or eight takes as they like right. monkey around and figure it out. But it really gave me more respect for Ringo. Man, Ringo seemed right. to know like how to arrange this stuff and how to support this stuff. He was the first one who always seems to to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a really groovy drummer. As someone said, he swings. Yeah. yeah. He swings. Have you, have, have you crossed paths with him? That's another I thing have. about uh, your show. It seems like you cross paths with so many. Uh, I have, I have met Ringo through a friend of mine. Uh, uh, I don't know him. And uh, uh, I had my picture taken with him, and I cropped everyone out of the picture <laughs> to make it look like Ringo and I were sharing a very intimate Last laugh. weekend, yeah, yeah. And I went like this to him, and he doesn't shake hands, but he will go like that, so we bumped. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I had the moment of putting my hand out like that and then him going, Mm-mm, I'm not going to touch you and then having to go like that. And he stood around. He laughed at a couple of my jokes and I laughed at a couple of his jokes. And uh, he was on the Ferguson show and I, I, uh-huh. I worship and adore Craig Ferguson. And uh, Sad to hear him leaving that. I know. Yeah. Uh, that show, I got. I didn't stay for the taping. I was told to come early and that way I'd get to meet Ringo. 
And of course, I know some of the cats in the band because I, I know some of the cats in the band. I know Greg Bissonette and uh, uh, who doubles on drums with him. And uh, in any case, to make a long story short, we were there for the run through, and that's what I got to see. And they did uh, Boys, and they did uh, 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 um, I Want to Be Your Lover. Yeah. So I got to see them play it like four times. Yeah. And they, it was just a rehearsal for soundcheck, and they fucking did it straight out, you know. I want to be your lover, baby. You know, and, and it was really cool. And then that, when we saw him backstage, he's whipped thin. He looks fabulous. He looks like Yasser Arafat's healthy little brother. <laughs> and uh, quite Jewish looking now yeah. in his old age. That's funny. I just interviewed uh, Amy Salat, one of the producers from Fresh Air. As a kid, she was a young Jewish girl in Lubbock, Texas. And uh, her beetle was Ringo because he looked the most Jewish. Right. He has the biggest <laughs> nose. And he acted it. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, and he's lovely, you know. Uh, but I remember two, um, four or five years ago, whatever, Bringo does a, Denver t- a tour every year where he takes uh, superstars out with him. They're, I think they're called the All-Star Band or something. Yeah, yeah. Joe so, Walsh, I know, ends up in Yeah, Joe Walsh, time. right. So everybody gets to do their numbers. Well, Joe is married. They're both married to the Box Sisters, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Ringo's married to Barbara, and Joe's married to the other one. So they're in-laws. <laughs> Joe's favorite band in the world is the Beatles. So he couldn't be more excited that he's... Ringo's brother-in-law. Yeah. Ringo made a record last year with Joe. And Joe's, of course, a superb guitar player. And practices his scales every day. This is Joe Walsh, who doesn't need to practice his scales every day. <laughs> Sits down and... Keep the instrument working. Yep. And is a tremendous, you know, Mr. Lick. I mean, what riffs didn't he write? My favorite thing Joe ever said, I asked him once... Uh, I know him from Drew because he, he's good buddies of Drew and and he used to play with our improv group so I know Joe and he, I said uh, what is you know when you play with the Eagles he goes when you write a song for an Eagles album the problem is you're going to have to play it the rest of your life <laughs> and then Jeff Davis asked him once who's late for Eagles he goes I gotta go to Eagles practice that's what he calls it Eagles practice <laughs> who's late for Eagles practice Joe and he goes well Everyone, but mostly Don. <laughs> but uh, I was watching TV four or five years ago, and I don't watch a, t- a TV very much in my room. But I had it. I had the Late Show on. It must have been high in my room. And uh, Ringo was on the road with Dave Stewart, right? Yeah. And Dave was wearing one of his flashy, you know, big hair and a giant of the Eurythmics. Yeah, the Eurythmics. Who's quite an awesome producer and arranger of, of his own, you know. And uh, I, I, I'm pretty certain that even though I think Annie Lennox is the musically talented one, uh, he, he obviously is as well. I think he, without him, she did, might not get off the ground. I yeah. think he made her be in a band and front the band and be the big lead singer that she is. And you saw her in the Grammys, thank fuck she got up because it was horrible. But she got up and went, and you went, oh. <laughs> he's a, pro- a professional is arrived. Well, and she also sang I Put a Spell on You, which was like... I loved it. Like, yeah, let's let's sing real music from then. Yeah. Let's not talk about auto tuning, and uh, Pharrell. Uh, in any case, that I know he's talented. Anyway, uh, he had he had Ringo on, and uh, they had a couple new ones. You know, as you do, some new shit that he'd written that was okay. Then he let Ringo play for twenty five minutes. It, the whole show was Ringo. First twenty minutes was him interview. Yeah. Then the second half was Dave and Stuart and Ringo's band. And Craig 
sat on his desk, got up from behind the desk, sat cross-legged on the desk, and watched, and never said another word. And Ringo played, little help from my friends, don't come easy, photograph, just hits for 25 minutes. And I was like, this is the best TV show I've ever seen. Yeah. Talk about showing him respect. Yeah. Respect. And up until uh, the last album, Double Fantasy, Ringo had more chart hits than John as really? a solo act. Oh, yeah. Ringo yeah. had a Ringo giant was, career. Yeah. When he was drinking, especially in the early 70s, <laughs> I think he was really. And he played with, uh, uh, you know, he was friends with Mark Bowen and Elton John. He wasn't just sitting at home. He, yeah. he got around town. He's in a, a Born to Boogie. And, I, I saw the movie that he made with uh, Harry Nilsson. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, what's the name of it? The vampire film that right. they made together. He's in the yeah. uh, Shun of Schmolson or whatever. He's yeah. on Harry Nilsson's. Uh, they did a record together. What's it called? Pussycats. And uh, he plays on George's albums. He plays on John's albums. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they play on his albums. George and John play on Ringo's albums. Paul somehow misses the mix on this. Because Richard Perry was Ringo's producer. And Richard Perry was a huge Beatles fan. And he got them all to play, I think, together. And Richard Perry produced uh, what Carly Simon and um, Pointer, Pointer Sisters, Sisters and uh, made a brilliant version of uh, Wild Night with uh, Martha Reeves mm -hmm. on her own. Uh, and is now, and was at the Grammy show with Jane Fonda. He's her boyfriend now. Oh, really? Yeah. And good, I remember they good cut. Gig. Yeah, they cut to him a few times, and he was just like completely paralyzed. You know, just looking. <laughs> And then they said he passed out at the show, and it was like, well, it was clear it was too warm. Oh, yeah. And he's 70-something, you know. <laughs> it's like, you leave Richard Perry alone. What I love about Richard Perry is his ego. The Martha Reeves album cover, it's her solo album, and it's quite a good Martha Reeves album. They use that version in Thelma and Louise. When they get in the car and they take off, it's, it's Martha Reeves' version of Wild Night by Van Morrison. Uh, it says, Mar it's a picture of Martha Reeves on the cover Martha Reeves and in letters that are almost as big as her name produced by Richard Perry so it looks like the name of the album is produced by Richard Perry oh he made a lot of I mean the Pointer what he did with the Pointer Sisters and Carly Simon yeah. he made them into huge superstars yeah and he made a name for himself too he yeah. was a, a record producer that people people knew back in, back in the 70s you're so vain it's just a giant achievement in recording yeah and one of the first ones I remember with a cameo in it because Mick Jagger comes in and oh, that's right. sings the chorus with her. San Francisco, and it was fantastic to read Darrow. Walking down Mission Street, my wife and I, and there's a dude standing out in front with a kind of a groovy outfit on, like smoking a cheroot. Right? So I go, uh, you know, whither goest, Broham? And he goes, uh, you know, harky down. And so we nipped into the fucking place, and it was filled with bric-a-brac, tchotchkes, every manner of effluvium and jutsum from the last uh, mid-century on. Uh, uh, license plates and whatnot. You know, little chairs. But the chairs, you kind of went... It, it, 
is this, is that here or are you selling it? You know what I mean? There was that sort of thing. And then cases full of shit that you went, are you really selling that? Or am I supposed to look at that? Or do we negotiate? And then buckets of records, right? Like two giant crates of records. And they were all carefully picked too. There was like Harry Belafonte and this and that. Then in the middle of this store, uh, in the back, a lending library. Yeah, you fucking heard me. A lending library that you had to give them $10 to take a book out for like a couple weeks or whatever. And there was a girl sitting on a shelf. You couldn't know she wasn't for Lent. But she, there was a girl sitting on a shelf reading, talking to another guy. And I like came in and then I was like intimidated and I fucked out. And she was like, no, you can come in. And I'm like, is this a bookstore? And she's like, no, it's a lending library. And I'm like, in the middle of a store that I can't figure out what they're selling? I think I said I do a show or something. And they're like, really? Shows are, shows are important. Yeah. It's San Francisco, you know. Shows are, shows are, you know, shows can happen. They're vital, right? So I went into the bathroom and the whole sink was full of rocks. And so, you know, exactly. It had an ancient cistern toilet with the hand, you know what I mean? And, and a sink full of rocks. And you went, I'm fucking starting to love this place a little bit. They're having events I don't understand. They sell shit I don't understand. There's a lending library that had maybe half as many books as you've got. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It didn't have that many books. And some were arcane. Some were good. You know, the Communist Manifesto and whatnot. But they had like, you know, I, I can't like Angela Carr, John Fowles, you know. Uh, it was fun. So if we ever go back there, if we ever get out of here. Even though you, you, you live in Hollywood these days, you, you, you tend to describe uh, San Francisco as being your hometown. Uh, what's, what's your relationship with that uh? That great city where I myself dwelled throughout the nineties. Did you really? Oh yeah. Oh, of course, you worked at uh, Le Video. I was I was working at Le Video and uh, hosting poetry readings. We're, we're, Le Video was on Ninth and between Irving and Judah. Oh, Ninth and Irving and Judah. Oh, sure. Then there was one on Twenty Fifth and there was one on Twenty Fifth and Geary that we used to go to all the time too. And that one had a restaurant in it. Oh yeah. It had a. It was a cafe, and, and I think it might have been called Video Cafe. I think or it was cafe a twenty-four. Video. It was a twenty-four hour. Uh, right. It was a twenty-four hour yeah, restaurant. Yeah, sure. It was I, a I, coffee I, shop. Yeah. I don't think I ever ate there. Maybe once or twice, but we used to call it Colonel Reddle and Eggs because <laughs> the the Dutch movie that was out at the time. Uh, my relationship is good. I go up all the time. I feel uh, very. I've had a, a friend pass away, uh, an artist named Rex Ray in San Francisco, and uh, we saw him right after New Year's when I was playing there. Then I got a call from uh, Janet Varney at Sketchfest. Janet has her own podcast. And uh, I had said I couldn't do Sketchfest, but someone had dropped out, I think Garland. And I, all of a sudden, I was up a week later, and uh, my wife said, oh, I don't want to go. And I'm like, it's a chance to see Rex again. So, of course, we spent the whole weekend. She did. And I went there a lot with her, too, to the ICU and saw Rex. And then he has a memorial coming up in a couple weeks' time. And a gig dropped out of the air on me to do the Infinite Monkey Cage with Brian Cox. So there's all this weird uh, cosmic pull yeah. that keeps bringing me back. Well, I mean, San Carlos is not too far outside of San Francisco. No, about 30 miles. You know, I guess that must have really shaped your psyche for that to be uh, looming in the distance. It was all I could do. To, all I could think about was moving to San Francisco. I didn't dig my... I mean, I didn't hate San Carlos, but I felt stifled by the whiteness and the suburban nonsense of it we were was did people say you can't get out of san carlos if you're born there you're going to stay there forever was there that kind of thing or no i think everyone because it was such a white upwardly mobile community 
uh, the, the notion was we were all going to go to college and make our way in the world. Um, Alan Levy, who I went to grade school with through college, uh, high school, is a TV producer in Hollywood. Jennifer Grenholm, who I went to uh, high school and junior college with, is was the governor of Michigan after two terms as of attorney general. And uh, now she's a pundit on TV. She's the uh, she has blonde hair and uh, uh, you know oh, wears, that one. wears the power suit and <laughs> yeah. She had a show on what was Al Gore's uh, annoying station that John Fuglesang had a good show on. Um, Oh, what was the name? Remember of the Current or whatever? Yeah, Current TV. That she had a show on that, and then now she shows up on Bill Maher and MSNBC and whatnot as a pundit. She's a very bright lady. Uh, she was the queen of our junior prom. She was a super fox in seventies, <laughs> giant fair fossil hair, uh, cheerleader, whatnot. Hid her intellect fairly successfully all through high school. And then in college, I remember she moved to LA to be an actress, and I think she hated it. I think she got hit on by every guy in LA. And that grossed her out. Next time I saw her hair pulled back, spectacles on, breasts flattened down. And she said, uh, I said, what are you doing? And she went, I'm, I'm going to bolt. I'm going to be a lawyer. Yeah. So she had stopped, or uh, a political science. She had stopped with show business at eight, 18, 19 and changed direction immediately too. So she went to bolt, she went to Cal, became attorney general and the rest is history. I saw her in San Francisco. She came to my show on New Year's week, got juiced with her husband and, uh, so she's a good, she's a good, I was going to say she's a good kid. She's my age. And then when I went to do her TV show in San Francisco on Current, uh, two of the other girls who I went to high school with, Diana Burden and Cynthia Denardi, uh, whose names might be different now, but uh, they were working for her. And uh, so it was like a little high school reunion. We all were class of 77. And uh, I said to my wife, isn't it unusual that all of us would be arch liberals and be so political? And she went, no, you're from the Bay Area. <laughs> Because if you'd all come from Georgia or something and you'd been, you know, and you were in military school, yes, then it would be odd. The fact that four liberals from San Carlos ended up in a room together 30 years later on is not. And I thought, oh. I remember when I arrived in San Francisco in 91, uh, there was uh, a, a law that I think was passing the, the council about uh, you couldn't um, discriminate against transgender people in the mm-hmm. workplace. How about and that? In, in 1991, that was, uh, the, I was delighted to hear such a law was in place, but I, I was, it was certainly seemed different than what was going on in the Philadelphia city no council. No kidding, right? Yeah, yeah, it really seemed like a, a revolutionary. Well, was that five, four or five years after Wilson Good bombed the entire block? Yeah. It's not yeah. that long after. I saw a comedian uh, after that, and he said, boy, the Daily News really missed their chance on the headline. The headline should have been, good fucking move. <laughs> wow. But, uh, yeah, yeah. What I, a I, moment in American civil rights history that is that no one ever talks about anymore. No, no except uh, Mumia from jail. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, it was different. So my relationship now is I want to go back, and I'd like to live there again. But I think it's priced itself out of my range. Uh, in L.A., we're experiencing a huge real estate bubble right now, bigger than the so-called bubble that, if you remember the middle class, we were so greedy and we wanted to have a home. And that's how the financial collapse happened, <laughs> according to the narrative on TV. <laughs> and anyway, uh, I find that there's it's a little bit 30-something white guy, douchey IT tech for me right now. The emblem of evil in San Francisco is the Google bus. And um, because it means uh, massive techification, it means what were poor neighborhoods were nice. You remember going to the mission and getting a burrito 
Well, you've been to the mission lately. You noticed that it's Chi-Chi now. Yeah. yeah when it I, used to be the 91, man, the kind of a no-go. Yeah, I remember you, you, you kept your, your wits about you walking yeah. through the mission. If you took then. the 16, or the, you know, you, you yeah, you had to keep your head up. Yeah. Uh, uh, when I lived in uh, Hayes Valley, uh, I was had rocks thrown at me and bottles. And, you know, like you, I got my shit kicked. You know, you had to keep your you know head head up but um yeah. even in the late 90s when i when i ended up moving away that it was uh my 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 stock line was they've come from the suburbs and they brought the suburbs with them yep yeah and the tech people have this weird you know i i have nothing against uh, progress but uh, uh i don't see i don't see that tech is the salvation for everything that everyone else does but they they have a lack of uh, curiosity um about other things that aren't tech they're not cultured. Uh, and I don't mean they don't know Shakespeare. I just mean it, nightlife, music, poetry, art. Yeah. Nah, it's not at the front. I remember the rise. Not of, at the front. The rise of cover bands in the 90s yeah. sort of taking on popularity to me was sort of a canary in the coal mine mm-hmm. for the culture of the right? San Francisco. Because, you know, they, they want to go to their coffee shops. They want to go to their restaurants that are all chichi. Uh, they want to be on their phones. Uh, and they want to be on their iPads, and then that kind of ends there. They don't give a lot back. Yeah. And Zuckerberg's taken a giant because he moved to the mission, and he's Lord God Jesus. Uh, I didn't know that. Zuckerberg yeah, Zuckerberg lives mission. in Dolores Park, right near it. <laughs> um, they've all that's it's the locus, so everybody wants to be around him, like Zoroaster or whatever. And so they've made this incredible tech community where it used to really be working class Latinos to be sure. Uh, And so that's changed the complexion of things. Uh, Again, the city always has to change, but the big lie is that it was worse before Mm -hmm. that. The lie is that gentrification makes things better. Gentrification eradicates local art and culture. That's what gentrification does. So it was dangerous before, but there was fucking bars and there was bands and there was yeah. nightlife and there was people. Uh, when all of a sudden gentrified, now you have to stand in line to get a $5 cup of coffee. That's not progress to me. Uh, I liked the burrito places too, you know. I don't want to live in constant fear uh, of being jacked, but I'm not willing to trade off everything for personal comfort and I think that's where they're at in San Francisco and there's a war between the haves and have-nots because the have-nots are being pushed out rents are being jacked through the roof and then you go well where will I go I'll go to Berkeley right or or, or, and when you live there Oakland right Oakland was always the last frontier Mm -hmm. because it was so black and oh my god who'd live in Oakland and of course now like Williamsburg was 20 years ago (laughs) right there was a time in Brooklyn when no one from Manhattan would think about living in Bay Parkway or whatever. Yeah. And now they do. Yeah. Now they're, I, I know young people pushed out to Queens. Oh, and... you, you can't live in Williamsburg anymore. Yeah. When comics used to move to New York from San Francisco in the 90s, they'd go to Brooklyn because you couldn't afford to live in Manhattan. Now they can't live in Brooklyn. Now, right, you're in Queens, you're in Staten Island, you know, the last frontier, you're going to have to take a boat in. When I, was ah. in, I was in San Francisco this summer and was talking to a young woman coming in on the BART, and she was. Uh, at the end of the Bart line somewhere. And, mm-hmm. uh, Fruitvale. Fruitvale, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, dreaming of, of getting into San Francisco. Yeah. But it, it seemed like uh, you know, somewhat hopeless. We're, I think we've reached a Mandarin society where there's a city within a city within a city within a walled city. And then at the inner sanctum of the city is the highest people. And I've seen it happen in London. I lived in London. 
Uh, I've seen it happen in New York, uh, San Francisco, Paris, any place you can think of. Probably Philadelphia too, for all I know. It is, uh, you know, something that is underway in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Not not quite as advanced as uh, a yeah. lot of other places. It, there's New York and London have neighborhoods that are empty yeah. because rich people live there and they don't live there all the time. Yeah, there's, so there's a, just often a tax houses. thing where they yeah. have to live there for one month in mm-hmm. order to, you know, uh, have a deal on their taxes and. And real estate developers, in the, my mind, are the greediest people they, in the they world. Call, I've heard it sometimes referred to as the Paris Plan. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. move all the minorities out to the uh, to the suburbs where they're they're left to fend for themselves on uh, on on uh, utilities and things, and then. Uh, and then, uh, you know, in, in the city, they're they're able to deliver services in a way that, you know, uh, is is nice to the to the rich people. And right. Uh, we used to do gigs in New Jersey in a place called Red Hill. And uh, I think Red Hill lost somewhere in the number of 50 or 60 firemen during 9-11, right? No member of the NYPD or NYFD lives in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. They live in Jersey. Yeah. And they never do live mm-hmm. in Manhattan. You can't. <laughs> London, uh, the rich neighborhoods like Mayfair and Belgravia um, don't even have people in them anymore. You can't buy cigarettes or milk. You can't get your dry cleaning done. And that's what gentrification does. High-end Paris plan gentrification. Uh, You see it happen in San Francisco. The corner store is closed. Now there's no laundromat. Um, Tech people hate the post office. They call it snail mail. They're against that, which I find highly political as we were talking before the show, that everything's political. People who don't like writing on paper and don't like getting mail <laughs> to me is, is a class thing. The post office is run by women and black people mm-hmm. and it's the, they're, the right wingers are determined to destroy the post office because there's a law that forces them to overfund their pension. So they're funded, I think, 75 years into the future. Yeah, they said there's real, no other precedent for that no. needing to be anywhere. Right. Yeah, that was really devised to, to present this crisis to the post office. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. And they're desperate to get their hands on it. Yeah. Like Social Security. Social Security is not going to break the country. And it's not underfunded. It works. Yeah. It works. Like Medicare. Mm-hmm. A lot of these social things that Johnson and you know, some of the enlightened leaders that we've had in this country got, into, got going, the Voting Rights Act, which has been largely nullified, uh, worked. The welfare state works. Yeah. It's proven again and again. When you feed people... And give them money and educate them, that then there's not as much crime and dissent. Speaking of education, that's another <laughs> thing from the 20th century that we, we need to give up at this point, yeah. is schools. There was a massive closing of Philadelphia schools. <sighs> and... Uh, yeah. Philly and Chicago really yeah, got hit I mean, hard, didn't uh, they? Yeah, it's a, an incredible attack on, yeah. on, on a society in general. You know, I don't think anybody's living someplace where they wish people were a little dumber. You know. Oh, I think that the uh, government and that's... <laughs> they might, yeah, yeah. maybe. Corporations and the government go for it. Yeah. A dumb populace is easily cowed, and then you can use stupid reasoning to... Yeah. No, I know what you're saying. I yeah. think it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And that's what I rage against all the time on my show. It's, you know... It's... Uh, so not... that, that's a long answer about San Francisco. I'd love to go back. I don't think I can afford to. The climate of the city's changed. The temper and the tambra have changed. But I think the essence is still there. There's enough people fighting for right and enough people fighting for... The thing about coming from the Bay Area is you're poisoned. I thought everybody was a nice, sharing, caring liberal and then I got into the world and then came the giant awakening that everyone's a fascist and that there's only five sharing, caring liberals <laughs> but that they cast it like everyone's... That sharing, caring liberals have ruined everything with their yeah. their sexually transmitted diseases and their reefer smoking and their jazz. Uh, uh, you know... 
and it's just a giant clash all the time, I think. We're still fighting the same stupid culture war that we've been fighting for 50 years, you know? My father was a mixed bag. Uh, He was a giant guy. And uh, we didn't get along on a lot of issues, but he took me to hundreds of baseball games when I was little. I have no idea why. I don't think he'd gone to them his whole life, but I think when I turned like eight or seven or whatever, he thought, I'm going to take Greg to baseball games. And so we went to hundreds of them at the old Candlestick Park. Candlestick Park was on the top of a hill. And there was no escalators in the 60s and 70s, early 70s. You walked up a switchback. And as you walked up the switchback, there was all these weird things. As you got closer to the park, there was a blind guy playing an accordion with a giant basket and a button on his uh, 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 crocheted vest that said, help me. And he would be playing and you'd throw fucking money in. And then there was, on Sundays, a mariachi band, the Giants band, who wore orange blazers and baseball caps, and the Red Garter Dixie band that had a tuba. They would stand on the dugout during the fucking innings, in between innings, and be like, I'm not fucking kidding, you guys. I know it sounds like I was born in the 1890s and shit, but I love the mariachi band best of all because they'd pitch up in the aisle next to you and it was loud. And it would be like, the guy with the giant dobro and shit like that, and they wore enormous sombreros and shit. This was every fucking Sunday of my childhood, so I don't know what your childhood was like. There were giveaway days, just like there are now. But now there's like jet flyover, you know, fascist dominant paradigm day and whatnot. We didn't have jet flyovers when I was there, but we did have bat day. And now they give you a coupon for a bat and you go exchange it and shit like that. And when I was little, they gave you a bat. There would be 20,000 children with baseball bats in a ballpark and we would bang them on the ground when any time a rally would start and shake them at the other team when the other team was up and then in the seventh inning you'd go everybody hold up your bat we're going to take a picture and there would be a picture every year in the yearbook of 20,000 insane 8 year olds who had been eating hot dogs and coca cola all day going like this Ah! they gave children bats the idea of that now you could smoke in the park yeah, well, more's the pity. One, two, three, four. And that's it for this episode of Fun to Know. Check back next week for the second and final part of our proof conversation. Check out past shows at our Fun to Know podcast page on Facebook. Just hit the like button. Follow us on Twitter at Fun to Know Podcast, always with a numeral two. Watch Greg on the CW's Whose Line Is It Anyway? Check out his Smartest Man and Film Club podcasts. And check back again for the next episode of Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.